You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 11, Ohio versus the Gilded Age. Today we're going to be talking to author John Tolliver, um, a fantastic author. We're going to really pour through his book about John Hay called All the Great Prizes. And John Hay, who I believe to be one of the most interesting men to ever live in the United States, an Ohioan uh, from Cleveland. We'll talk about him. He's the most interesting man of the Gilded Age. That, that Gilded Age period known for its extravagant wealth, um, you know, really a time of the 1% ruled the world. Uh, it has a lot of similarities to today, but everything was extravagant. And it's kind of that period from the death of Lincoln after the war in 1865 to really the death of Queen Victoria and w- William McKinley in 1901. And we'll talk about all three of those very famous people as they revolved around today's episode and today's subject, John Hay. John Hay was a very famous man during his time, um, but today it's very hard to find remembrances of him. There's the old Hay House up in Cleveland on Millionaire's Row on Euclid Avenue. There's a high school in Cleveland, John Hay High School on the east side. The library at Brown University, it's called the John Hay Library, where he went to undergrad in Providence, Rhode Island. But John's been kind of lost to history. Today we're going to revive him, and we're going to revive him through the book by John Tolliver, uh, Simon & Schuster's 2013 release, All the Great Prizes. We talked to John via Skype. He was out in his uh, cabin out in Montana. He lives most of the year down in Austin, Texas. Um, But he's a fantastic author, and we're really going to focus on not just John Hay today, but focus on the craft of of book writing and a historian's approach, a biographer's approach, to writing what I believe to be one of the best books I've read in the last few years. I've read it twice. Again, all the great prizes. We'll put a link to Amazon to buy that book. Um, Again, Simon & Schuster back in May 2013, it came out. Uh, Thanks so much to John for coming on. We had an awesome time talking with him, um, and we got to find a way to get him back on the show. But check the link in the description. Buy this book. It's available on Audible as well. If you listen to your books on, uh, you know, it's audiobooks, check it out. Our beer for the episode today, we are having a city boy, uh, John Hayes from, from Cleveland. He was a city boy living in New York and D.C. and Cleveland and all over Europe and London, Madrid, um, Vienna, all over the place, and in France. He loved the urban life, and he was, he was a real cosmopolitan. We'll talk about his life going from these big cities to big cities. Uh, Platform is a fantastic brewery in Cleveland and in Columbus. You can go to platformbeer.com. Um, check out their tap room on the near west side in Cleveland um, and downtown, actually, here at uh, in Columbus on 6th Street. Um, you can always check out our friend, the Meatball Mafia. They do the kitchen there on, I think, Thursday and Friday nights. Excellent. That's at 408 North 6th Street. And again, it's platformbeer.co. Um, 
fantastic beer, and they make awesome sours. I love sour beers, and City Boy is one of their flagship sours. Um, it's a Berliner Weiss. It's a kind of a German wheat beer that only has 4% alcohol. It's served in kind of tall boys, um, but it comes out just cherry red. It's got raspberry flavor on it. It's, it's just a fantastic beer, um, and it's one of their more popular uh, sour beers that they make. So check them out. Again, it's Platform Beer, and today we are drinking the City Boy for in honor of John Hay. And if you're in Cleveland or in Columbus, go check out their tap rooms. The owners are awesome guys, um, and they make fantastic beer, so we're glad to, to rep them again. But let's get started. Today we're going to really dive into the life of John Hay, and we're going to do it through one of my favorite authors, John Tolliver. And check out his book, All the Great Prizes. You can buy it in our, again, the link in our description. Today we're going to talk about the Gilded Age, a period in America of massive expansion to the West, massive industrialization in the North, and all the issues that came with that, with the railroads and the robber barons and men like, like John Hay's father-in-law, Amasa Stone, and the Carnegies, and the Rockefellers. The term Gilded Age comes from Mark Twain. He wrote a book called The Gilded Age. And basically, it's this thin layer, this gilding, this gold gilding that kind of goes over all of these massive, serious problems. It's this kind of gold coating, that, this thin veneer that tries to mask all the serious issues that were developing in the last half of the 19th and early 20th century. We'll talk about John Hay, his life from Lincoln to serving as the Secretary of State for Theodore Roosevelt before his death in 1905. It's episode 11, Ohio vs. the Gilded Age. focus on John Tolliver's book about John Hay, All the Great Prizes. We're going to really talk a few times today about the crafting of writing a great biography, a great piece of history, which John has done. A fantastic book. I'm a huge fan. But he had a serious problem when he started writing this book. John Hay starts his career as a young man picked from obscurity, plucked from obscurity to become Lincoln's private secretary, living and working in the White House almost like a press secretary today, for if you're looking for a modern comp on, on his job description. But what do you do? You're not trying to write a book about Lincoln, but he looms so large. And so John made a decision to kill off Lincoln in the first page of his book. We asked him about that decision and writing about John Hay. Well, that's a very astute question, Alex. I mean, boy, I really worried about that for a long time. I was, I was doing my research because... Um, you know, Lincoln is the, is the big 500-pound gorilla in the room. You have him, you know, any book or story that has Lincoln, you can't put him um, off stage. Right. He's, there he was. So it, it really almost came to me in the middle of the night. I thought, how am I going to handle Lincoln? How am I keep him from, from really um, eclipsing John Hay. And I thought, well, I've got to kill him off on the first page in the first chapter. Um, it was almost sort of a, a, as if I was a playwright. <laughs> and by doing so, by be opening the book with the death of Abraham Lincoln, um, then I can bring Lincoln back to life in the course of the book. But as seen through the eyes of John Hay, right. and really there's no 
better person who uh, to use in understanding Lincoln. So it was really a great uh, dramaturgical tool, if you will, but it was a great way to really um, uh, highlight the fact that John Hay is the go-to guy um, for most biographers when they want to know what Lincoln was, life was like in the White House. John Hay's career at the center of American politics began in 1860 as he worked at the top of Lincoln's campaign for president um, in that storied election that led us to civil war. But he also shows up 45 years later as the Secretary of State to Theodore Roosevelt. From 1860 to 1905, those will be the years we're focusing on. But to put that in perspective, that'd be like John Kerry, who just resigned as Secretary of State for, for Obama when they left office in 2016. That would be like him having been the press secretary for LBJ. Going back all the way to 1967, 1968. That's the kind of span that we're talking about, span of time in history. We're talking about Lincoln to Roosevelt. It's almost the same as talking about Johnson to Obama. It's an amazing career. And we ask him, you know, how did he come to write a book about John Hayes? Not a very well-known guy, um, although in his day he was incredibly famous. I was visiting my father, who was a big reader, and he um, he was always trying to shove books into my suitcase. And he gave me uh, a book called Manhunt, which, as you may recall, was about uh, the hunt for John Wilkes Booth after the assassination. And I, and I was reading it on the plane going back to Austin, Texas, where I lived. And, and there was John Hay at Lincoln's bedside when he died. And I'd just been finished reading that he had been um, with McKinley in Buffalo when he was dying. I thought, holy hell, these are, mm-hmm. this is the same guy. How does he show up in these two different pictures? You know, 36 years apart. Yeah, and so I, um, I literally wrote a one-paragraph email and sent it to my agent saying, um, we, need to, we need to connect these two dots and... And she sold the book based on the email. Uh, and to this day, uh, and when I wrote the book, there are people who know a lot about Lincoln, and there are people who know a lot about Teddy Roosevelt, but they don't. it didn't occur to them until the book came out um, that this is the same person. John Hay is born in Indiana, October 8th, 1838. And at age two or three, he moves to Warsaw, Illinois with his family. In Warsaw, Illinois back then was beyond the frontier in the 1840s. It's actually one town over. He had some family members that were involved in the killing of Joseph Smith, the Mormons, who had set up shop in Indiana until they were forced out into Missouri and ultimately to Utah. John Hay ends up enrolling at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. He graduates in the late 1850s and moves back to Illinois. He joins his uncle uh, and becomes basically a, a law clerk at his law firm in Springfield. And we ask our, our guest today, John Tolliver, how did this random kid from Nowheresville, Illinois, become such an important part of the history of American politics? The reason why this book was possible was Hay was a really great writer. He'd grown up in a small town in Illinois, Warsaw, on the Mississippi River. His father was educated doctor, and 
um, John Hay just seemed to be a good little bookworm and he was had a facility with the language. And his um, grandfather sent him off to Brown University in Providence where he was, uh, his eyes were opened and he, he, he thought he wanted to be the next Edgar Allan Poe. He wanted to be a poet. He wanted to live the, the life of a, of a writer. But he came back to Illinois and well, they weren't hiring poets in Illinois <laughs> in the 1850s. So uh, begrudgingly, he went to Springfield uh, to read law in an uncle's law office, which happened to be next to Lincoln's law office. Lincoln surprised everybody by winning the nomination, a Republican nomination, and then winning the presidency. And there he was with no staff, just one secretary, deluged with mail, and the whole country wanted to know who he was. So he swept up this young man who was um, had his nose buried in law books next door and said, "Help me write letters." Well, it was just the it was like watering a watering a plant, and and hey, really really flourished from then. Well, and he and he to be honest, you know, reading your book and some of his writings, he didn't seem. I'm a lawyer. Uh, he didn't seem that fascinated by a life in the law either. Well, if you're a lawyer, you know there's a lot of people who go to law school. Just there are a lot of liberal arts majors who go to law school. You're looking at one. They want a paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about John and his bachelor lifestyle. Uh, he liked to have a drink, you know. And there's a great story. He goes with Lincoln in 1863, actually just a week after Kate Chase's wedding that he attended, and he goes to Gettysburg for what was a historic event, although they didn't know it at the time. He went to the Gettysburg Address, and John writes in his book that John Hay was pretty hungover for the Gettysburg Address. I love that story. We asked John about that weekend in 1863. They didn't take their meals. The secretaries didn't take their meals in the White House, and they would go off to one of the watering holes in Washington, and he was a young bachelor. He was very dapper, well-dressed, and yeah, um, not unlike... Um, most young 20-something-year-old men. So, yeah, he uh, um, he had a, uh, he wasn't a heavy drinker, but he did enjoy himself. So they all got on the train. Uh, there were a lot of other politicians on the train, and they uh, chugged up from Washington to Gettysburg to give this short address. And um, as most everyone knows, the Gettysburg Address is only about three minutes long. It followed a... Uh, a speech uh, that was nearly two hours long. Right. Uh, so people were standing on their feet in the crowd. And you can see poor John Hay. They'd had they'd had to stay in a rooming house, and then there were bands playing the night before, and and people marching down up and down, singing songs. And he uh, got drunk, and he got up and had a hangover, and had to walk out onto the Gettysburg battlefield. They hadn't even buried all the bodies. Um, and stand and listen to these long speeches. So when the president spoke, and remember John Hay had heard, he'd been with the president uh, for a long time by then, and he'd heard him speak a lot. And so it wasn't that special a thing for John Hay to hear Abraham Lincoln talk for two or three minutes. So Lincoln stood up, gave his three-minute speech, the Gettysburg Address, and John Hay says, well, um, we got up and talked. We got on the train and went home. And, and so it's very anticlimactic. I would love it for it to be this great, uh, you know, um, 
um, rich uh, observation that he made, but I'm, I think it's almost more charming that it's just sort of like, huh, Lincoln uh, tossed off a, another, another little gem. And so South begins to surrender in April of 1865 at Appomattox. Robert Lincoln, uh, Lincoln's son, was actually there at Appomattox. He was serving on, on General Grant's staff when the surrender occurred. Richmond Falls. Lincoln even tours Richmond. And he returns to, to Washington on, on Good Friday. He decides to go to a play, as we all know, at the Ford Theater. John Hay was at the White House that night. He's, he's hanging out with Robert Lincoln, a couple years younger than him, but they were friends. And we asked John to just to replay in our mind that night and John Hay's experience watching the death of Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president. Lincoln had a real warmth and, and intimacy with John Hay, uh, more of a father and son uh, intimacy than he than Lincoln had with his own son Robert. So, and Hay was kind of the the go between. Actually, he got along quite well with Robert. When Robert come down from college, they would chum around a little bit. And so Robert was home um, in the spring of of 1865, uh, it was, um, he had been off and uh, serving as an aide to General Grant. And they happened to be in the White House just sort of shooting the breeze like a couple of guys in a dorm room or something. And uh, uh, someone came burst into the White House and said, the president's been shot. It jumped in a carriage and went over to the boarding house across from Ford's Theater. And, and, and there they spent the night with a um, um, number of cabinet members and, and Mrs. Lincoln until um, the president died. Even before Lincoln died, John Hay was moving on. Him and, and John Nicolay, the other secretary, they never got along with Mary Lincoln. They called her the Hellcat. And they were already leaving, planning on, on taking different jobs. Um, and Hay decides to leave for Europe. He gets a job at the legation in France, and he decides to leave to go explore the world. And he goes to a Europe that's full of monarchies, failing monarchies. He would go sit in these courts and just see the extravagance in which they lived. And meanwhile, people on the streets were talking about democracy and revolution. He goes to those rich, lavish courts, and he can see the end of the European monarchs. We asked John just about John Hay's years in Europe, in Spain. He writes a book called The Castilian Days, about, about his, his days in the Spanish court and all the good times that he was having as an American ambassador of sorts in Europe in the 1870s. I really appreciate about John Hay is um, how he took advantage of opportunity. And I hope it informs my biography. You know, there's a, there's a school of biography that all lives, all great lives have this great arc that it, 
you know, a, a, a young man or young woman th realizes that he's destined for greatness, this great arc, Teddy Roosevelt, we can see that he was going to be the, the leader of the world from the time he was, you know, uh, doing his first chin-ups to get rid of his, <laughs> get his muscles, uh, as it were. John Hay didn't really have a plan. What he had was a series of vantage points. He got to college, he realized that there was a bigger world out there. He got to work for Lincoln and he, and he saw the world from that vantage point. He saw the country and he, and he appreciated where he was. He saw where he could get to from there. He could get, he could parlay his position in the White House to getting jobs in Europe. He got to Europe and he became incredibly cosmopolitan. He, could, uh, he dressed well. He learned languages. He spoke German. He learned French. He was pretty good at Spanish. Uh, he learned. He, he he was a quick study. He studied the 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 manners of court. He first went to uh, he went to Paris, Vienna, and Madrid, uh, and served in all those places. So he was uh, the cosmopolitan young man when he finally came back. Now, and of course, he was a bachelor. So. Um, being at court in any one of these countries, uh, um, when when Americans came to those places, he would escort the the, the daughters of of the visiting dignitaries. He was introduced to the best society in those cities. Um, very few Americans had the opportunity he had. Now, on a more serious note, he had just come. Uh, out of the White House, where the American Republic had nearly been shattered and 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 ruined by the Civil War, he gets to Europe and he sees that sees that democracy is just taking its baby steps. The you know there were there were uh, things going on in all these countries in 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 Europe where there were. Um, Countries were led by kings and queens, but then there was democratic movements going on all yeah. the while. And he, and he realized that something special was happening in the United States, that we were the beacon, that we were the, the, the laboratory for this democratic movement, and this contagion that might and would catch on in Europe. And, and, and he came home realizing, even more than before he left, just how how great this American experiment was. John Hay moves back to, to the United States in, in the early 1870s, and he takes a job at the New York Herald, a paper with the biggest circulation in the country, owned by Horace Greeley. Uh, the editor, Whitelaw Reed, a great Ohioan and friend of John Hay's that we talk about. And John's a very talented writer. He's a very talented editor. He has he's got a popular book. He's got these popular short stories, The Pike Counties. And he goes to work in New York. And now in his early 30s, John Hay meets the woman that he would marry, the daughter of the richest man in Cleveland. He meets Clara Stone. John Hay had uh, played the field and uh, had not, um, I guess it was time to settle down. He was working um, for the Tribune in the, New York, Horace Greeley's paper uh, was uh, really valued, one of their best writers in the, in the biggest paper 
circulation-wise in the country. And he was introduced uh, to Clara Stone the, by an aunt-uncle who were visiting New York. John Hay marries. He marries Clara Stone, the daughter of Amasa Stone, the richest man in Cleveland, the industrialist, built the railroads. Um, you know, we were at a wedding at the Old Stone Church in Cleveland, downtown on Public Square, that he helped rebuild. Um, actually, a wedding of, of one of our listeners, uh, Lisa and Ben up in Cleveland, a place where the Hayes used to go to church, and a place where Amasa Stone and John Hay put in a lot of money. Cleveland in the 1870s is booming. And this is when John Hay becomes an Ohioan. It's the 10th largest city in the country, still behind Cincinnati, which was 7th or 8th, but a massive industrial town growing every year with the lake and all the, all the transportation and, and all the industries that were built along the lake and along the Cuyahoga River, uh, the railroads going through Cleveland between New York and Chicago, Detroit and Pittsburgh. It was a huge town. It was one of the richest cities per capita in the world. And we're talking about one of the richest cities you know, during this gilded age where someone like you know, John Rockefeller is so rich that he represents 3% of our country's GDP. Think about that. He's 3% of the economy, one man. We asked John about his father-in-law, Amasa Stone, the richest man in Cleveland. And just what kind of family did John Hay marry into? Amasa Stone was, before there were Rockefellers, before there were, were Carnegie's, there were people like Amasa Stone. He was one of the wealthiest guys in America. He had started um, railroads in Ohio, uh, basically doing the, the work of connecting the New York to Chicago and the rail lines that ran along uh, uh, Lake Erie and along the Great Lakes. He then uh, expanded into steel. He invested in what became Western Union. He owned a big chunk of um, Standard Oil that John D. Rockefeller, another Clevelander, started and uh, built everything in Cleveland, the, the train station. He was the... Um, the wealthiest guy in Cleveland, Ohio, until Rockefeller probably uh, beat him out. And um, he had two daughters, Flora and Clara. Clara was a nice girl, homely, um, in the even by the standards of the day, and 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 well-read, but not a not I would say a. a, a a really outward, um, um, really charismatic person. But John Hay, I think, was looking um, to settle down. And uh, I think he saw in Clara Stone a, a, the, the life that, that he could have, marrying the daughter, um, the adorable and complacent daughter of one of the wealthiest guys in America. Yeah. And um, so he, he did. And, and after a little while in New York and a child, they agreed to move to Cleveland. And All the rich people in Cleveland lived along Euclid Avenue in what was called Millionaire's Row. It's still an important street today. It's known for its broad, you know, 
wide streets, it's wide avenues, and it's giant houses. A massive stone would build a Hazel house next door. There's still some huge homes there. You can do a tour with the, you know, the Case Western, um, the Western Reserve Historical Society does tours of Millionaire's Row. But we asked John just about Cleveland and Millionaire's Row during the Gilded Age. I grew up in upstate New York. I mentioned my mother was from Cleveland. You know, Buffalo, after the completion of the Erie Canal, was had more millionaires than any other city per capita than any other city in the country. Cleveland was next. It was the only arrival. It was um, because of the um, the lake traffic, because of the um, coal coming in from southern Ohio, and then later because from the uh, oil business, it was the rich, richest rivaling only rivaled only by Buffalo City in the country. Chicago, it's, it was still staggering from the fire. Uh, the big robber barons hadn't really moved to New York yet. People like, you know, the Carnegies and um, the Vanderbilts were wealthy. But so Cleveland was really the place. And um, everybody lived along Euclid Avenue. Uh, very few of those houses, maybe there are a couple still standing along there. They ran up from downtown, um, they ran out uh, along uh, eastward along the lake, and it was a wide boulevard with uh, groomed yards and, and great mansions along there. It's, um, it's almost incredible to, to believe of looking at that area now. Hay joins the family business, and immediately the Stones family's fortunes begin to change. No fault of John's, but just history. The panic of 1873 sets in. They lose millions of dollars in shares. We talk about a lot of these panics in the 19th century on this show. Um, This is the one of 1873, and it was a very important one. But thanks to the deadliest train accident in American history, it takes place in Ashtabula, Ohio. It takes a, a bridge built by the Stones, a train made by the Stones, owned by the Stones, is going over a gorge on the Ashtabula River in 1876. It changes the fortunes of the Hayes and the Stones forever. The greatest train accident in American history up to that point. He had married into this fabulously wealthy family, and then almost immediately his uh, stepfather had this... um, comeuppance with the there was the crash of 1873 he lost millions and then in 1876 um the next blow hit and that um uh, december of 1876 uh, uh, one of the lakeshore trains was running through a snowstorm uh westbound uh from erie to Cleveland, and there's a giant gorge of the Ashtabula River east of Cleveland. You Ohio listeners are probably familiar with it. And um, the trusses on a trestle on that train collapsed with the train going over it, and the train fell down into the gorge below. The uh, Wood, uh, the stoves that were uh, in each train car to keep the passengers warm, then ignited the train, and more than 90 people died in that crash and that 
fire and it was the worst train disaster in the history of the United States to that point. It was it was really huge. And this was the time of labor unrest um, and a lot of people pointing their fingers at the super rich, the robber barons, and, and, and a lot of fingers were pointed directly at Amasa Stone as being callous and, 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 and really being the author of this disaster. And there was great public pillorying of him. And um, he, he uh, defended his, um, he defended the construction of the, of the, trestles the, the design had called for for stone and wood and he'd build it out of steel people said the steel was 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 not done right and and he fought it and they ended up paying about half a million dollars yeah um, in the lawsuits but he never really recovered a mass of stone did and um in the end he fell into a depression he couldn't get out of and 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 finally climbed into the bathtub in his house on Millionaire's Row, Euclid Avenue, put a gun to himself and, and killed himself. Following all this family tragedy, Hay is still very active in politics, in Republican politics. He's a standard bearer of the Republican Party. Not a big fan of President Grant, whose term is running out at this time in 1876. He supports Rutherford B. Hayes, the former Ohio governor, war hero of the Union Army, and Central Ohio's only president from Delaware, Ohio. The corruption and excess of, of, Grant's, uh, of Grant's regime always rubbed Hay the wrong way. And he feels, you know, since he left Lincoln's side, he was there when he died, that he had to keep the Republican Party on, on the right track. And Hayes was someone who was known for no nonsense. He ran a, a clean ship, and, and it was Hayes that he gets back into politics with. He gives Hayes a present, actually, it's, a pretty incredible present. Let's you know kind of where the kind of money John Hay was dealing with and, and, and what he thought of Rutherford B. Hayes. But upon his, his victory, his very controversial victory in the election of 1876 that we will talk about during our president's season next year, he gives Hayes a, a ring with the hair of George Washington in it. And where do you get that? Where do you find old, you know, three or four old hairs of George Washington? You put it in a nice ring. But that was his present to Rutherford B. Hayes when he won. And it was Rutherford B. Hayes in the State Department that would get John Hay back into politics where he belongs. We have Hay and we have Hayes. John right. Hay and Rutherford <laughs> B. Hayes. Uh, okay, first thing you have to remember is that, you know, Hay is sort of the keeper of the flame of the, he's the institutional wisdom of the Republican Party. He was there at the beginning, almost, when the first Republican president goes to the White House, he's there at Lincoln's deathbed, and now he's in very, very wealthy. He's been entrusted, he had been entrusted by his father-in-law to, to run family affairs. He, he had his hands in the family money. So he's connected politically, 
and he's got a lot of money. So he's a welcome player in political worlds. He wasn't just absolutely the most strident, ideological, dogmatic politician, but he felt a great duty to... um, to Republicanism, he all the while I remember he's still working on this this big Lincoln biography. So you have this two-term uh, Ohio governor Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, who had been a decorated, uh, wounded Civil War hero, who goes off and uh, becomes president. 1876, he succeeds Ulysses S. Grant. Um, John Hay is living with his wife, Clara, on Millionaire's Row in Ohio's great, Cleveland's great. He's got some pretty good friends. They get to travel a lot, but he's really kind of misses Washington. He really misses the salon of that. So he goes to Washington and, and, and he meets up with Frederick Grant, who's the son... I mean, uh, Frederick Seward, who's the son of William Seward, and uh, who's been the assistant secretary of state. Remember, uh, Hayes been to Europe. He speaks three languages. And Seward says, I think I'm going to quit. Why don't you uh, become, take over my job? Mm -hmm. And Hayes thinks, hey, this is great. Get the hell out of Cleveland. Probably not the first person to say that. (laughs) And, And so... He takes on the job and he goes to Washington for the last two years of Rutherford B. Hayes' presidency. And uh, as Assistant Secretary of State, I don't think his portfolio is too taxing at the time. But he's learning the craft, honing the craft of statesmanship, of diplomacy. Um, And, of course, he's so hail fellow well met. He He's uh, anybody who met John Hay in Washington or elsewhere thought he was the best conversationalist. They always went away quoting the things that Hay said, leaning into uh, their conversations whenever Hay spoke. And and so he's really um, winning friends and getting a a different sort of reputation besides just as a newspaper journalist or uh, as as an author. And it's at that time when Hayes turns his attention to James Garfield, a fellow Northeast Ohioan, uh, Garfield, who, who basically had a place out in Mentor, east of Ohio. Um, and he's a friend of John Hayes who gives to money, advice, and Garfield narrowly gets elected. But Hayes says he's done with politics. He decides to travel the world with Clara, their growing family. They go to Europe, you know, and he starts to work on his epic 10-volume uh, biography of Lincoln. It's one of John Hayes' great contributions to American history. Him and John Nicolay split up the task of writing the definitive volume of Lincoln. We ask, uh, you know, I just saw it on, on eBay. I showed it to my wife. It's the, uh, the original 10 volume. It came out in like 1890. It sells for $3,000 on, on, on the internet. Miss Ohio v. The World said, oh, yeah, send me the link is what she said. Um, not that she's going to buy it, but maybe someday. We ask our guest, John Tolliver, about John Hayes and John Nicolay's book, Lincoln, and its contribution to our understanding of the 16th president and probably the most important figure in American political history. Robert Lincoln was, was packing up his 
father's papers to clear out the White House so that Andrew Johnson could move in as the next president. And Hay and the other secretary, Nicolay, struck a deal with Robert and said, look, we, want, we would like to have access to these papers. There's something, uh, we don't want this to get lost. We don't want to forget what happened here. And we would like to write a book about the president as the man we knew. And Robert Lincoln, you know, on a handshake, said, sure, that's, uh, I, I trust you with that. Because, um, of course, he, he knew John Hay very, very well. And so they were charged with Lincoln's legacy, if you will. And, and it took them a while to do it. But ultimately, they, uh, Hay and Nicolay co-wrote this 10-volume biography of, uh, of Lincoln, which they really regarded as the American version of, of Gibbons, you know, the the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. You know, they wanted, they, they saw it and as those epochal terms. Other people did write Lincoln books and right. some of them were, didn't please the Lincoln family, didn't please Robert. So um, he realized that he, that John Hay had his back, that they were going to um, um, do him proud and, and do the legacy of Lincoln proud. Um, and they were friends. John Hay gets back into politics in the 1890s, and he picks another winner, another Ohioan, former Ohio governor, congressman from Canton, Ohio, another Northeast Ohioan, William McKinley. Hay takes to the stump for McKinley. He gives speeches. He writes articles. He goes on the attack of his opponent, William Jennings Bryan. He gives massive donations. He even a month before the election goes and has a a many-hour meeting with, with McKinley in Canton where he, he held his entire campaign. He had a front porch campaign, it was called. He brought the entire world to Canton, Ohio. We'll talk about McKinley, a very important figure um, called by some of the architect of the American century, um, a role that I think John Hay is just as influential in. But we talk about the McKinley election, John Hay's role in getting yet another Ohioan elected president. Well, you know... The secret passage to the White House was was Ohio for yeah. a number of years. We can go down the list of, of Ohioans who who became president. Um, even today, of course, it's a, a, a critical state for any presidential election. Well, William McKinley had been a congressman. He, he was he was just a good guy. People knock McKinley around for being sort of stolid and. Dull and and the and very quiet and but he was he was a decent smart thoughtful man and um, he wasn't going to he wasn't ever say anything too earth shaking and he worked his way up to become governor of Ohio uh, and it was obvious that he was going to be the next. Um, standard bearer for the Republican Party, um, for good or for ill. McKinley was the next guy in the, in the depth chart, um, partly because he was from Ohio, more than partly. So Hay gave McKinley money all along, and, um, and uh, there's an incident in McKinley's career that's been 
forgotten about a little bit. He yeah. got in great debt. He he uh, uh, he almost went bankrupt because of money he'd loaned to a friend. It was a great huge embarrassment. Right at the time he was he was he was getting ready to run for uh, higher office and and. John Hay and a number of other people from Cleveland jumped in and, and bailed out McKinley's debt. And, and one is uh, gratitude there. John Hay loved England, its people, its customs, the monarchy, the court, all of it. And he wins his ultimate job when McKinley gets elected in 1896, going kind of behind the back of his friend Whitelaw Reed, we talked about his his former editor at the at the New York Tribune. He gets a job as the ambassador to England, the court of St. James. He becomes America's representative to the most important empire in the world. He loved England. He really, really enjoyed the English people. I, I think if he had been reborn, he would have been wished to be reborn as an Englishman. He just took the English and the English took to him and he wanted to, when um, McKinley was running for president and was elected president in 1896, um, John Hay wanted to be the ambassador of, to, to the court of St. James. You know, and in all of John Hay's career, he never really worked hard to get the next thing. A lot of th things just fell his way because of his charm, because of his, his brain, just by good luck, by being in the right place at the right time. But the one example, the one exception to that is he wanted to be the ambassador to England and he went through great machinations and mm, some Machiavellian did. manipulations against one of his, his great friends and it succeeded in getting uh, that appointment from McKinley. Queen Victoria is at the end of her reign. I mean, think about this, from 1837 to 1901, 64 years, she rules over the ever-expanding, ever-more-powerful British Empire. It was only in September of 2015 that Queen Elizabeth II became the longest-reigning British monarch. She surpassed the reign of her great-great-grandmother, Victoria. Uh, you know, It was just last month in February, uh, I'm sorry, last year, in February, she became the first British monarch, Elizabeth II, to celebrate a Sapphire Jubilee, 65 years on the throne. It's called the Victorian Age across the Western world, this period from 1840 to 1900. The sun never sets on the British Empire, the most powerful nation in the world. It's not even up for debate. But this most powerful person in the world, Queen Victoria, takes a liking to the short, charismatic, dry-humored, John Hay. She has him sit next to her at every major dinner, and he really reaches the pinnacle of high-class society. You know, just some kid from Nowheresville, Illinois, Midwestern values, you know, a, a Cleveland resident, born in the frontier in the 1830s, is now sitting next to Queen Victoria in the halls of the Court of St. James. Well, you know, she was a widow. We've uh, seen lots of movies about the men and Queen Victoria's life later on. What can I say? John Hay was a charmer. Um, when he was introduced to 
uh, Queen Victoria, I think it was, at Windsor Castle. He went with his wife, Clara, and they just hit it off. Um, Americans, as today, who got appointed to uh, diplomatic posts abroad, often it was a political appointment, and, and often the appointees are, are coarse, and they really don't understand the the um, the ways of of court in other countries or the customs of another country. Sean Hay did. He was as, as um, worldly and as cosmopolitan as any diplomat America had. And and so it was a great, refreshing experience for Queen Victoria, of course, who was related to, to many other um, members of the royal courts in, in Europe to have this this articulate, witty, polite, uh, just canny ambassador emits, and, and they be, they just uh, hit it off. Yeah, I mean, she'd always, like, make sure he was sitting right next to her and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's that just goes to show you, like you said, he, he really was a charmer. Yeah, he didn't eat, uh, <laughs> he didn't eat his peas off a knife, that's for sure. <laughs> is looking to expand to declare itself a world power but it has spain in its hemisphere there's a war raging for revolution in cuba just 90 miles off our coast mckinley's government tries to buy the island of cuba the spanish refuse to sell they won't grant autonomy to the cubans and a bloody conflict rages in cuba mckinley's reluctant to get into this war but everything's been just ratcheted up the pressure hawkish congressmen led by people like henry cabot lodge of massachusetts a senator a great friend of theodore roosevelt you know and what's called the yellow journalism of people like william randolph hearst i love the spanish-american war this period i I read about it all the time he famously told a photographer they sent to cuba in 1897 he said quote you provide the pictures i'll provide the war McKinley sends the USS Maine, a battleship, down to Havana Harbor just to provide a presence in the harbor, even if it's against Spanish wishes, but relative calm begins to reign in Cuba until February 15, 1898, when there's a massive explosion in the Havana Harbor. The USS Maine explodes. It's blown sky high, and 260 Americans are killed. It's that generation's Pearl Harbor. They're 9-11. No one knows for sure what happened, but the country and the media and the hawks in Congress are certain it was a Spanish mine or a torpedo. It was all later pretty surely found to be that a fire had erupted in the coal bunker that ignited the ammunition stock that blew everything up. But nonetheless, this event, this almost 9-11-like event, is too much for McKinley to keep us out of war. And the Spanish-American War begins in the spring of 1898 with Americans and soldiers saying things like, remember the Maine. We asked John briefly about that explosion of the USS Maine in 1898. They put the case to rest and said that it was not started by the Cubans, or I mean, it's not started by the Spanish, that there was some sort of spontaneous combustion in one of the coal bunkers. Um, but boy, it really, um, 
it really lit things up in terms of world politics, world affairs after that. The Spanish-American War goes better than anyone could ever imagine. And we'll go in depth on a, a later show about this war, I promise, but John Hay is named Secretary of State as the war begins and as it winds down. In fact, the war is over in just about three months in 1898. The U.S. and Spain signed the, the Treaty of Paris on December 12, 1898. And John Hay is famously quoted for calling it a splendid little war. The splendid little war is, is something that still lives on today when people talk about the Spanish-American War. We asked John, our guest, about the quote and why the victory was just so easy for the Americans. It's probably the most famous phrase attributed to John Hay. And I always have felt that that phrase, um, knowing John Hay as well as I do, is most of uh, history is is focused on the word splendid. And I prefer to focus on the word little. And in the context of John Hay's remark, I think he was really trying to say it was a splendid war because it was a little war. This is a man who had been through the Civil War and seen the death and the misery and just the ruin of that that war. and so the, the Spanish-American War was over almost before it started. The, the Spanish Empire was weak. Um, there weren't, uh, from a military standpoint, weren't really ready and didn't really have the um, didn't really have the, their heart into to uh, into fighting uh, so far from home. And of course. Uh, the story of Manila Bay and how we surprised surprised them there, and um, the invasion of Cuba um, by uh, the military, and and how quickly it ended. Um, it was it was it was a war that that uh, shouldn't have been fought, and and thankfully it was a war that didn't last long. Now, it in a way though it did because. We uh, annexed, uh, the United States annexed the Philippines as a result of the annexed also Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam. The U.S. becomes a world power under John Hay's watch. We're on the same stage as England and France and Germany and Russia, Japan. It's John Hay's job to develop a foreign policy that reflects our new standing in the world. It's one of the most important jobs ever, and it leads to an American century, as the 20th century is known. McKinley wins re-election in 1900 by a, a wider margin than in 1896. But it happens again. Just as Hayes experienced the president being shot, seeing a president who's lying, just dying, McKinley is shot by an anarchist, Leon Sholgosh, on September 6th, 1901 at a reception at the Temple of Music during the Pan-American Exposition, a type of World's Fair in Buffalo. Secretary Hay races to the president's side in Buffalo, and one can imagine the flashbacks he's having to Ford's Theater in Good Friday, 1865. It was actually Hay who ultimately telegrammed new Vice President Teddy Roosevelt that he was to come to Washington at once because the president had died. 
Remember, McKinley lingered for a number of days uh, while the infection uh, spread uh, through his abdomen. And for a while, they thought he was going to live. And um, and so a lot of people went into Buffalo to to pay their regards and good wishes. And John Hay, Secretary of State at the time, went to Buffalo and left thinking things were going to be okay. And and then when it was obvious that um, it became apparent that McKinley was was fading, was going to die, uh, Hay went to Washington to basically run the damage control and run the and make sure you know make the world and the gov the U.S. government um, feel uh, confident that the. That, 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 the things were still behind the wheel, be, yeah. the trains were going to run on time, yeah. And he set up a lot of the um, all the stuff that was going to happen in terms of the funeral and ever the statesman, ever the diplomat. Teddy Roosevelt comes to Washington, D.C. as the youngest president in history. He's known as an unpredictable cowboy. And Roosevelt, he, he knew John Hay, and he decides wisely to keep him on kind of balance out those fears of unpredictability of, of Theodore Roosevelt. They've known each other and they hit it off. They find this kind of father-son relationship almost from the beginning. But Roosevelt really did admire John Hay. He had almost literally been ba bathed in Lincoln's blood. He'd been at his bedside when he died. And when the Republican Party grew, evolved, and 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 warped to a certain degree in the late 19th century, people always could would go to Hay and sort of, you know, he was sort of, he was sort of the guiding uh, light of, we remember what the Republican Party used to be, and we sort of count on you to tell us where it's going. Symbolically, of course, Hay was in and out of government. So Roosevelt had that reverence for him and, and respected him. And they balanced each other in their natures too. You know, others have said that it was, it was, um, and I say it too that that Roosevelt, you know, he he wielded the big stick, but it was really Hay who became uh, Secretary of State under Roosevelt, who was the guy who talked softly. Teddy and John Hay work on huge things together. They work on the Panama Canal Treaty, and they take ownership of the land. A new nation of Panama is born thanks to the political machinations of Roosevelt and Hay. And these changes, you know, the canal changes the Western Hemisphere. They create this new country of Panama, um, backed by U.S. military out of, out of the country of Colombia. No longer do you have to take the many months' journey around the Cape Horn, you know, the southern part of, of South America, to get to the Pacific. And the United States now is a world power. They must be able to move by the sea from the Atlantic to the Pacific to defend itself, this new area of global empire. We have places like the Philippines and Guam, the annexation of Hawaii. We have holdings in the Pacific that we must be able to defend. And the Panama Canal Treaty that John Hay and Teddy Roosevelt uh, built greatly helps that situation. And Hay's also responsible for the first real U.S. policy towards China. It's called The Open Door. It's authored by Hay to rein in the world powers, which are exploiting the Chinese for cheap labor, its resources to sell their own goods with no real consideration for the Chinese people. They're carving up 
Manchuria, and other parts of the Chinese mainland. We asked our guest, John Tolliver, just about that, that open-door policy in China. Well, um, so we talked about, after the Spanish-American War, the um, U.S. becoming a world power, one of the so-called great powers. Well, one of the um, fertile fields, the playground for these great great powers was China. China had no real central government at the time. And uh, most of the European countries, Russia, Germany, England, France, had set up so-called spheres of influence in China, negotiating with local um, leaders in various ports along the Chinese coast. Japanese did so as well. And and it set up various trade agreements and, and, and got agreements that said, okay, you, we get special deals here in terms of um, with, with who we trade with and what we can trade and what we pay and all that sort of thing. And so they were carving up China like a pie. Nobody really cared. Uh, this is very cynical. Nobody really cared about the integrity of China, China as as one great empire or a nation, it was all just opportunity for the the, the other great powers. Well, um, John Hay realized, well, this is not um, this pie slicing is not good because if everybody who takes their little piece is going to exclude everybody else, then it's uh, um, it's going to be prohibitive in the end, and it's not good for China, um, and it's not good for um, for the United States. It's not good for anybody. So he came up, uh, it's a, without getting too deep into the details here, uh, but to really illustrate what John Hay's real gift was, he, he, he came up with this idea called the open door policy. And there was no, no legislation, there were no treaties involved. Basically, it was kind of a poker game. It was kind of a yeah. double dog dare you deal that really is, in hindsight, just so brilliant. He went to, let's say he went to Germany and said, if you agree to let China be open, let the doors be open and let everybody, every all of the rest of us, all the other countries trade there, uh, if you agree, the other guy is going to agree too. That'd be France or Russia, and everybody said, "Well, I don't really want to, <laughs> but we will if they will." And Russia was the most stubborn at the end, and uh, so John Hay would say to him, "Well, through his ambassadors, and he had a good crew," he said, "Let me get back to you." And so he would telegram and write letters off to to these various other countries said, yeah, well, the French say they'll do it. And so Germany's going to do it. And so he got them all to agree. And, um, you know, China, of course, they did, nobody said to China, what do you want on this deal? They, uh, they just told China what they were going to do afterwards. But it, it worked out. And, and today it's regarded as one of the great uh, benchmarks of American diplomacy, the open 
the open door policy, but it is not it is not a, a treaty. There's not a, a, right. a document, um, you know, like a, a salt treaty or something like that. Um, it, it, it was it was true brilliance. It was just this confection he created out of out of uh, smoke and mirrors, really. I was telling my friend Eric, he's a listener, just about this episode and just who the hell John Hay is. And I was playing, you know, telling him some of the, playing him some of the clips of his his writings. People don't talk like this anymore. This kind of idiocracy, as Eric called it. John Hay wouldn't know what to do with our current political situation, political discussion, and just discussion in general. But he's aging rapidly in his job as Secretary of State in the early 20th century. John Hay was always suffering from one ailment or illness or another as an adult, and it finally catches up with him in 1905. Roosevelt sends him away to convalesce in Germany. These baths in Germany are supposed to have, you know, great healing powers, kind of the pinnacle of medical treatment back in the day. And upon his trip back, it's clear to him that his heart is going to give out. The treatments didn't work. He writes in his journal, reflecting upon an amazing life. We leave you with, with John reading from uh, John Hayes' diary. The day before he lands in New York, just two weeks before he would die, at his summer home at the Fells in New Hampshire. He dies on July 1st, 1905. But this journal entry about his life and his mortality, it's amazing how he writes about his impending death and gives you a sense of just how truly great and talented an author he was. On June 14th, uh, the day before his ship landed in New York, and... If you um, don't know anything about John Hay and, and have want any insight into what sort of man he was, you can, you can just start right here and maybe end right here and, and let me read it to you. I say to myself that I should not rebel at the thought of my life ending at this time. I have lived to be old, something I never expected in my youth. I've had many blessings, domestic happiness being the greatest of all. I have lived my life. I've had success beyond all the dreams of my boyhood. My name is printed in the journals of the world without descriptive qualification, which may, I suppose, be called fame. By mere length of service, I shall occupy a modest place in the history of my time. If I were to live several years more, I should probably add nothing to my existing reputation. While I could not reasonably expect any further enjoyment of life, such as falls to the lot of old men in sound health. I know death is the common lot. And what is universal ought not to be deemed a misfortune. And yet, instead of confronting it with dignity and philosophy, I cling instinctively to life and the things of life as eagerly as if I had not had my chance at happiness and gained nearly all the great prizes.
Our book recommendation for today is, duh, All the Great Prizes by John Tolliver, our guest. We had so much fun ch- chatting with John, um, and we thank him for making the time, learning how to Skype with us, um, which was a little bit of an adventure, but we got it done. Um, and it's such a great book. Again, Simon and Schuster, 2013, All the Great Prizes, about the life of John Hay from Lincoln to Roosevelt. We read in another interview uh, he, he did on Book TV with C-SPAN. We, we actually watch a lot of C-SPAN over the weekends when they do all their history telecasts. Uh, and John was on, and we someone asked him, you know, he said that John Hay was a biographer's dream. We asked him why. First of all, the, the, you know, the, title, the subtitle of my book is um, uh, The Life of... John Hay from Lincoln to Roosevelt, just having his footprints on that uh, great span of American history is fantastic. But the real, the, the biggest reason, and when you're a biographer, is you know there are a lot of people you'd like to write a biography about, but a they're already taken, or b there's no paper there, there's no there there. John Hay left was such a great writer left behind so much writing such a great letter writer that people kept his letters nobody ever very few people evidently threw away a john hay letter and so so they survived and you can imagine um a lot of people keep all the letters that come into them but if you look at where all the letters you write go to they're, they're spread out all over the world well so john hay was a gifted writer and his writing survived and and thank god his handwriting was very very easy to read yeah. don't write a biography about robert lincoln terrible writer muddiest handwriting i've ever seen <laughs> oh it's terrible um so um to be in the presence of such a a, a, a person so refined and so um witty and so influential and watch him grow through his life to, to really observe the evolution of a mind of a, of a, of a world character through a life is an unusual chance. And, um, and I was just, um, you know, I think the one thing that every good biographer says to himself, I just want to do justice to the man. I want to do justice to the material. And, and, and I, I hoped I could do that with John A. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, episode 11, Ohio v. the Gilded Age. We loved it. We love John Hay, and I love this period in time. So this episode was really more for me than anybody else. A couple quick show updates. We have been added to the lineup for the Columbus Podcast Festival, which is scheduled for May 10th through the 13th, Thursday through Sunday. It's at the Garden Theater in the Short North Stage there in, in just outside downtown Columbus. We will have more information about buying tickets. We're going to do a live show at the Columbus Podcast Fest. So really looking forward to that. Appreciate them uh, considering us, and, and it's going to be great. Uh, and like I said, we'll post that live episode, but we'd love to have you buy tickets and come see us. We'll give you more info, uh, columbuspodcastfestival.com is the website, so go check that out. And also, don't forget to email the show, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. If you have show ideas, questions, if you want to buy one of our awesome T-shirts, whatever it is, 
uh, reach out to us there, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. We will be back with episode 12 next uh, in two weeks from today, and we'll be talking about Ohio versus 60s. We sit down with two Ohio State professors uh, and authors, David Steigerwald and Bill Shakurdy. We had an incredible discussion earlier this week about Ohio in the 1960s um, and really looking forward to talking about the protests and how they mirror some of the things that are going on today and just the history of student protests at Ohio State and other parts of the state and the country. So look for episode 12, Ohio versus 60s. Um, that'll be out in, on April 2nd. So thank you so much for joining us, guys. If you want to learn more about John Hay, scroll down into our description Click that Amazon link and buy all the great prizes. An amazing book by our guest, John Tolliver. Um, he's got a new book coming out, so we'll keep that information coming for you. And thanks to John for joining us so much. We'll see you guys next time for Ohio V the 60s. Take it easy. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.